Yeah, I have the uh, distinct pleasure of kicking off this six-week series uh, with us this morning, and so uh, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm really uh, hoping God is just going to come and, and meet us right where we're at. Um, honestly, when I was looking through the plan of, of this entire series, I was kind of dreading this. You know, starting a new series, it's like, wow, there's so much pressure to, you know, really come through and really just set the stage, and it's like, I really hope everybody comes back, you know, the next few weeks. Um, but really what I want to do this morning is just go through uh, a lot of the historical and kind of background information surrounding this book. I think it's really uh, an amazingly fascinating book when you dig into it and you see really what Paul, uh, who's the writer of this book, uh, and Sosthenes, the guy who co-wrote it with him, what they're doing together. And so uh, there's no better way, honestly, for, for me. We, uh, we were looking through some of this material and uh, has anybody in here heard of the Bible Project? Yeah, the Bible Project. They did an incredible video on 1 Corinthians. And so uh, my, it was just like, hey, let's just show that video just to get us kick-started. And so uh, we're going to watch this video. Uh, they're an amazing resource. In case uh, you don't know, they, they're a group of people who've compiled tons of inf- information, resources together for people to go and just do basic research on every single book in the Bible. And so uh, it's amazing what they did with 1 Corinthians here. Um, so we're going to go ahead and watch that, and then uh, I'm going to come back and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more through uh, Paul's first context. letter to the Corinthians. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. And a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities, and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems, and that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts, along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics, but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters one through four, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter, and people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me, right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. 
So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over, and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who He is and what He's done. In chapters five through seven, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother. A number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to Greek gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, "Hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine." Paul says it's not fine, and with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. He says, "Remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct." And so, if you're a Christian. Sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus's love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised from the dead. Which means this: if your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot, and it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. In chapters eight through ten, the issue is about food, but not just food preferences like do you like or dislike a certain food. The issue the Corinthians were divided over is meat that came from animals sacrificed in the local temples to Greek and Roman gods, and there was a split between the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians about how to respond to this issue. And once again, Paul appeals to some core ideas from the gospel. He says our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus as Lord, not to any other gods. And so, if you're in a situation where there's meat that's been dedicated to another god, and there are people around who might watch you and conclude, "Oh, look, hey, Christians worship Jesus, and they can worship other gods too," Paul says, if that's the scenario, don't eat the meat. Your loyalty is to Jesus, and you should love those people more than yourself and not mislead them. But Paul quickly qualifies this and says, "Listen, as Christians, we believe God is the Creator of all things, including that animal, and the temple idols we believe are just pieces of wood and stone. So, if there's no one around who's going to misunderstand your actions and you're hungry, eat up. You're free as a new human in Christ to follow your conscience in these kind of debatable matters. So, what makes it okay in one situation to eat but not in the other? The core principle is love." Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. And love, God's love, is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when He died for us, and so Paul says it's what Christians should do for other people. In chapters eleven through fourteen, Paul moves on and addresses problems in their weekly worship gathering. There were some people who were having really powerful spiritual experiences in the gathering, and so they would start praying out loud in unknown languages. There were other people who might start sharing a teaching or a word from God, and then someone would get up and interrupt them because they wanted to share. And it all was really chaotic, and it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the gospel. So in these chapters, Paul helps them think first of all about the purpose of this gathering, to help them see what kind of behaviors are appropriate. He says the gathering is a place where God's Spirit should be working through everybody, and it should happen in a unified way. So he develops this cool metaphor about the church as a human body. It's one, but it has all these different parts. 
and each part serves a unique and important role. So he goes on to name a whole bunch of things that the Spirit does through all these different people, all for the building up of the church. That's a key phrase in these chapters. And Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be a concept central to the gospel, God's love. And love is a key word in these chapters, too. Love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others. So Paul applies all this to the Corinthians' problems. Some people think the purpose of the gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. And Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful experiences of prayer, but if it distracts other people or freaks them out, I should stop it because I'm loving myself more than I'm loving those people. The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everybody can learn and sing and worship and hear God speaking to them. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who were saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil, how it's a source of life and power for us now in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus. It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead, which means this. The gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel. Well, that's pretty much it. Uh, no, it's honestly, when I saw that video, I was thinking to myself, wow, that's like really just a good description of what this entire book is all about. It's about responding to the gospel. And really, it's, it's kind of amazing because when you look through it, it's almost like uh, the, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is like reading somebody else's mail. I mean, really, that's what it is. It's it's a letter that was written to a small group of people that probably this small group of people were hoping that it would not be included, you know, for us to be seeing today and to be reading through because there's a lot of embarrassing situations like, you know, it's likely that Paul addressing this one guy sleeping with his stepmom, it's like everybody probably knew who that was, you know, it's like, oh, it's kind of embarrassing, great, now we get to see all that. Um, you know, so there's... There's a lot of uh, this entire story, this small church, just be, uh, issues that are rising up that Paul is specifically addressing through this letter. You know, it's not like he was intending to write this as some kind of 
masterpiece theological documents or anything like that. It was like, hey, here are real issues that are rising up, and how do we deal with these issues? Like, what do we do? Because if you think about it, at that time, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, they did not have a New Testament. They did not have, you know, the stories of Jesus aside from just what was orally taught to them, right? All they had was the Old Testament. So for them, it's like, okay, like, how does this tie into the situations that we're dealing with right now? You know, like, it's got really strong, specific issues, and we really don't know how to deal with them. Um, I'm going to come back to this a little bit. Um, I want you to uh, hang with me. We're going to go through just some background information. One of the things that I find really fascinating, uh, a lot of times when we read through uh, a lot of these books, is uh, we just kind of start reading them. Right? We pick them up and we just start reading them and it's like, oh, okay, but I think it's really important for us to understand why we read them, what some of the specific issues that we're facing, uh, those communities, who the audience was, uh, the style of the times, all these things is really important. In fact, uh, if you go back to last week's message and listen to Josh uh, talk about just like why we read the Bible and how to read the Bible, I think that is going to be such a helpful uh, tool for us just as we go through this entire series. So let's talk about some of the uh, quick facts about the city of Corinth. Corinth itself was uh, an incredibly strategic location that served as a crossroads between Italy and Asia. Uh, It was actually an isthmus. I don't know if anyone has taken geography or remembers what an isthmus is. It's kind of a weird... I actually have a map. Here it is. So if you take a look, uh, right where that red uh, pin is dropped... That is where Corinth is. It's the tiny, narrow strip of land. And it was really strategic because what would happen was it was a port uh, that would help people uh, avoid really just the dangers of traveling through uh, the sea to the south of Greece. Uh, The sea to the south was incredibly dangerous. It was uh, known for just its insane uh, weather. It was really unpredictable. And so what they would do is they would travel from Rome around uh, the Sicily Peninsula right there, they would go up into uh, the, the isthmus right there, and then the ships themselves, they would actually dock them and put them on kind of a railway system that would get across the isthmus to avoid the southern sea, and then it would go up through the coast around uh, the Aegean Sea right there. So it was kind of like, I mean, it was only about three to five miles long was the isthmus, and so uh, for them to do that, it was actually really strategic. Um, That was for kind of the smaller shipments, larger shipments. They would actually offload and then travel through the land all the way up to uh, Asia, which was actually safer. So uh, it's kind of amazing, really strategic uh, location just for a port. Uh, The city itself was actually destroyed in 146 BC. Uh, The Romans actually captured the city from the Greeks and uh, completely leveled it, destroyed it. Then Julius Caesar came in 44 BC, so about 100 years later, and it decided to re, uh, repopulate it, recolonize it, uh, because of its strategic advantage. And so uh, normally, a lot of the people who were the colonists, who were going to this destroyed city, uh, they were actually, uh, it's very similar to like the American story, really. It's just people who wanted a, a better opportunity, who wanted upward social mobility from Uh, whatever area of life they were living in or whatever uh, economic or social status they had. So a lot of people, it was all over the the spectrum uh, of people who would actually come to Corinth to populate the city. So it's kind of cool. Older commentaries, so 
Uh, I will say this. Uh, this is a commentary, actually, that we're using uh, through this series. It's written by Hayes, Richard B. Hayes. Uh, and in this book, actually, Richard Hayes says that uh, a lot of the, the sexual promiscuity that 1 Corinthians or Corinth is really known for, um, it's actually a lot of legend. It's really not real, if it makes sense. Uh, there was a legend that on the, uh, it's not the Acropolis, it's the Acropocorinth. I can't pronounce it. It's kind of weird. It's basically where the temple of Athena was, or the, the, uh, the temple of Aphrodite was. Aphrodite was the Greek god of, uh, you know, fornication and sexuality. And so uh, there was a legend that prostitutes, and this, the video addressed this a little bit, that prostitutes, there were thousands of prostitutes at the temple, and that it was uh, considered part of Greek religious practice to have sex with these prostitutes, Right? And in the commentary, it talks about how really a lot of that is just legend that because Corinth was actually a shipping town, uh, it, was, it was just a, you know, a normal place where a lot of sailors lived. Uh, it's, it's your standard port where there's probably no greater or less sexual promiscuity than any other uh, you know, naval port, if that makes sense. Uh, Paul actually planted this church. Paul is known for planting roughly 14 uh, different churches throughout the world in three different continents. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Uh, you can actually take a look at this uh, reference in Acts 18. Uh, Paul also references this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and uh, verse 10. And he spent roughly 18 months there. So he was in the trenches working with the people who were there, uh, communicating the gospel, just really building something from the ground up. That's really what uh, the office of apostleship is. Probably this letter was written two to three years after he left, uh, just enough time for issues to rise up where they don't have a leader to help address them. So um, it's just like, hey, we got all these issues. Uh, this letter was also written, co-written by Sosthenes, who was a guy who, who was a part of that church. So he lived there. He had some correspondence with Paul. He likely helped Paul kind of address these issues. Uh, so he's also known for uh, co-writing this letter. And a lot of times, too, this church actually wasn't really that big. It was only about 150 to 200 Christians, which really isn't crazy big when you think about it. Um, 150 to 200 uh, Christians. There was 30 to 50 in any one gathering, so they met in, like, small community groups, locally, likely throughout the city, uh, just getting together, you know, getting into uh, the Old Testament. They would pray together. They'd sing songs, uh, just like any small community group or gathering. And like I said earlier, they, they represented a, a wide range of social and economic classes. So you have people who were heads of household, you had slaves, uh, you had all these people who were all coming together, and a lot of these issues that were coming up were directly re- because of some of the, the distinctions and the statuses that people had. So um, really kind of unique situations. So really this is all about this book is all about seeing every part of life through the gospel, right? It's about seeing every part of life through the gospel. And really from a bird's eye view, we can see the problems and how Paul responds to them. But really it's a, it's a good model that we can use to apply to our every single day life, everyday life right now. So again, these are really specific issues that he's addressing, but how do we extrapolate from that? What's the method that we can utilize to address the problems that we today face, right? 
And so here it is. It's really simple. We need to first define what the problem is. Right? You can't find a solution to something unless you know the problem. You've got to define what the problem is. And then second, you need to respond with the gospel. And really, that's it. Just respond with the gospel. How does Jesus handle these specific situations? Because the, the gospel, it's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a new reality. We don't want to live in the old reality of the problems that we're facing, right? We want to step into a new reality. A new reality that opens up uh, who Jesus is, what that, what that does for us. It's real powerful. And the gospel is uh, something, it calls us to a higher vision of what the church is. The gospel calls people to a higher vision of what the church is. In fact, uh, the early part of 1 Corinthians kind of goes through this. Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-3. through 3. It says this, Paul, called by the will of God. There's that word called. Called to the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There's that word called. Next verse, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's something that's interesting about every single one of these references I just read. Right? He talks about being called. But one of the things that I notice is that in every single one of those instances where Jesus Jesus is calling people to a new reality, it's always in the context of community. It's never separate. It's never individualistic. Right? It's never, hey... You're called to something, go do it yourself. It's no. You're called to something, to be a part of something that's much bigger than yourself with the community of people around you. That's the thing that's amazing, right? Called to be an apostle. He's, he's starting new things. He's, he's inve- investing his time, his energy, in building something new for the benefit of people, right? With his brother Sosthenes. Called to be saints together, right? People, all together by whom you were called into the fellowship, right? You're called together with people. That's why this is so important, right? Because all these issues that he's talking about, they're all irrelevant. If you just try to handle them by yourself, they're completely irrelevant. The gospel is something that's powerful because it not only calls us to a new reality, it not only calls us to be what the church is, it calls us into community, and that's really what the church is all about. Living in a community that is going to be building up the, uh, for the benefit of everybody who's in it. Now our goal in just going through this book is not just to, to read these problems that these people faced some 2,000 years ago, right? That's 
That's easy. That's super easy. I can read through the problems and see how Paul addresses them. But if we go back to what's the reason for it, you figure out what a problem is and then you respond with the gospel. This can actually impact us in every single area of our life, right? If I have specific problems that I'm working through, God has an answer to all of those things. And this book helps kind of outline a process by which we can use the gospel to speak into those areas. So how does the gospel transform problems in my relationships, right? I've got tension in a relationship with a coworker or my spouse, my kids. What does the gospel have to say about that? My finances, maybe I'm just barely getting by. I'm paycheck to paycheck, I'm just struggling, right? What does the gospel say about how God wants to speak into my finances, Right? So in all these areas, this is what we're going to do. Over the course of uh, the next five weeks, we really want to hear from you guys. And the whole purpose of this gathering, this getting together on a Sunday morning, is to help build us up to become the people that God designed us to be, right? And so we want to hear stories from people how this process is transforming those areas in your life, right? Whatever they might be. So actually, if you go to our website, you can actually go check it out at bluemont.church and scroll down on the homepage down to the section where it says New Messages. The video that we watched this morning is up there. You can rewatch it if you want. You can check it out. Um, you, you can you know, read the little blurb that's right there. And there's a little button that's included that says Share a Testimony. And really what we want to do is encourage you If God's doing something through this entire series, it doesn't have to be, you know, this week. It doesn't have to be week two. But if God is doing something in you and working in you to to bring these problems to the surface and He's responding and bringing light in these areas, we want to hear from you. So just click that button and fill it out. And what we're going to do at the very end of this series is we want to actually have a time where we hear these testimonies, Right? And the truth is, if, if we're meeting here on a Sunday morning and we're not hearing any kind of stories about transformation or what God's doing in people's lives, then this is a total colossal waste of time. Amen. Honestly. Yeah. Like, this, why are we even meeting, yeah. right? That's, the point is that we want to be people who are speaking uh, truth, who are communicating the gospel, who are seeing our lives transformed by what God wants to do in us, right? Um, it's kind of amazing, like, I constantly am in a process myself where, like, you look back, you know, a few years before uh, from where you are right now, and you're like, oh, like, I'm not really that different. But what's amazing is when you get around community and you start communicating with other people, it's like they, they see the difference and the change that's been kind of, that God's been doing in you. And that's so encouraging because it's like, wow, like, man, I really am changing. I am being transformed by the gospel. God is really doing something powerful and amazing in me. So the two things I'd encourage you to do, get around people, right? Have conversations. See how God is transforming specific areas of your life. If you have problems, see how the gospel, you know, over this course of the next five weeks can transform those areas. And then share that testimony on our website. We really want to hear from you about that. So just highly encourage you to do that. Um, And if we don't, we'll just, you know, shut Bluemont Church down.
Just kidding. I hope not, actually. All right. Um, there is a weekly reading. I do want to point this out. Uh, it's not actually up here, but uh, we have a weekly reading. It's on our website. If you go check out uh, the Facebook page, uh, on our Facebook page, actually, there's uh, posts every single week about our weekly reading. Technically, we're not reading 1 Corinthians until next week. But if you want to be an overachiever, you can go ahead and read 1 Corinthians this week. Um, in fact, I'd encourage you to try to be an overachiever. Um, when somebody, when actually, when I saw that on the weekly reading, I'm like, yeah, probably not me, honestly, um, if I'm being completely honest. So, uh, But if you want to be an overachiever and read through 1 Corinthians, it'll probably help you just try to identify and see uh, where we're going throughout this entire series. So um, I'm going to pray for us, and the worship team's going to come up. We're going to finish off with one more song, and, and uh, then we'll be dismissed. So, God, we thank you so much just for who you are, God, that you, through the gospel, open up a new reality, God, that allows us to be transformed, to be transformed as a community, and to allow the church to become what you designed it to be. And God, I thank you so much that, uh, that we can be in that process together with you. I thank you that we, we have such an incredible opportunity here over this next Five weeks, God, that you want to do something powerful inside of us, that you want to work in us. God, I pray that we would take it to heart, that we wouldn't just do our weekly Sunday routine of show up at church, have a nice smile, shake hands with a few people, and then just go about our day. God, I pray that this would be uh, something that would just propel us forward into this new year. God, that would shape the very core of our being. God, I pray that we would see every area of life through the lens of the gospel and to see how you want to respond to it. God, we thank you, we love you in your name. Amen.